So far in this series, we've looked at universal love, and we have the story of the woman at the well. We've also looked at life-changing advocacy, and today we are looking at radical generosity. And what springs to mind when you hear the words radical generosity? When I hear generosity, I often think of wealth. And even in this story, we've got the rich man. He lives in luxury, and it's really focused on wealth. But I really hope that today you don't feel even condemned. Actually, you feel encouraged because this is the gospel. It's not a message of bad news and of condemnation and damnation. It's the message of good news. And we've heard of how Jesus brings peace and hope. And that's the purpose of this today. And justice and love and generosity, these topics will never, ever go out of style. Even in the news this week, we were hearing about justice um, with the George Floyd murder trial and Derek Chauvin being convicted. But also, I was watching the news the other day, and we know of the really serious and heartbreaking um, cases, rising cases in India, and the devastation that that is causing. And one news um, outlet said, maybe we could give our second doses to them so that they can have their first. And that reminded me of radical generosity. So this is stuff that we will never be able to escape. It's on the news. We're seeing it um, when we walk on the street. We're hearing conversations. We may even experience um, lack of generosity, generosity, injustice, justice ourselves. Um, but this is all about radical generosity, and it's at the heart of God. So I wonder, again, where this story lands with you. Who do you identify with? What do you think when you hear it? For me, it makes me think of my dad. Some of you don't know, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, which is a really small Caribbean island. It's the most southern of them all. Um, that's where I call home. And it makes me think of my dad because in Trinidad, he grew up in insane poverty. He tells me stories, as um, most parents do, of sleeping on the floor, using a flower sack as a pillow, bugs crawling over him. Um, he would sh often share one piece of bread, a cup of milk with his eight siblings. His parents, um, his, my granddad was ill. He actually injured himself. He couldn't really work. My dad would get vegetables that they could grow and then go and sell them on the side of the street. And what was most significant about that is that despite the poverty that he grew up in, the community really came around him and helped him. People used to invite them to weddings just so that they'd have food to eat. Imagine that. If you knew someone who was getting married and you knew somebody who didn't have a meal, they wouldn't be able to dress nicely. They might smell. They would really look out of place, but you're just inviting them so that they can get a meal. The community came around my dad and his family, and the church really helped them out. And um, he had friends who helped him to train to become a mechanic. He became a taxi driver. And then a year after I was born... He was driving um, under a flyover in Trinidad, and a driver was speeding. And the driver tumbled off and fell on top of my dad's car and crushed it. And it killed everybody in the car apart from my dad. He escaped just with a back injury. And I say just with a back injury. It's been a chronic back injury that he's now had his whole life. He couldn't even pick me up when I was a baby. That's how bad it was. But despite coming from poverty, despite not even having all of his health, my dad is one of the most generous people that I know. He never stops doing, he never stops giving, and he really goes above and beyond. And it also reminds me of us as a church. When I first joined St. Mark's, 
I was blown away by the generosity that we show each other and the community, whether that was people offering me a place to live if I didn't have anywhere, if I just moved to the area, through food bank, through spear, through compassion. Um, I think of Ian and Susan who cook meals when we used to have courses here in person, how you guys wrap around each other and pray and call and talk and support, and all of the other ways that you give financially um, and with your skills as well, you might be serving in a team. And it's really easy when we look at this passage and we read of heaven and hell and the condemnation and damnation that might come, um, as I was saying, for us to feel, oh my goodness, that's really doom and gloom. But when we look at this passage, it's actually one of the most depicted passages because of that really strong imagery between heaven and hell. But as I said, it is the gospel. And this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus uses to illustrate his key teaching. Um, it's a parable. It's not a fable because we've got two human characters. We've got the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who isn't named Lazarus who is, and we'll come on to that in just a second. But through this really strong imagery, this gut-wrenching, um, really convicting passage and story, we can understand that radical generosity is at the heart of God. It's so important. And because of that, it's also so important. It's integral to our calling as well. So when we delve into this and you look at right at the start and we compare the rich man and Lazarus, it says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine living and lived in luxury every day. Imagine him now. He's probably got a great Instagram account, really high following, posting pictures of cars, his expensive meals, watches, um, the reference of purple in here is actually quite significant. Purple is a color that really alludes to luxury and prosperity. And this, there's this mention that Lazarus sits at his gate. Think of somebody who lives in a gated community. That, to me, screams wealth. I often think of huge houses that have gates on the outside for privacy, but also for protection. I think it's to keep things out. Um, like he might be keeping Lazarus out, but it's also to protect himself. Maybe he is just so wealthy that he's got to have this gate up to keep himself safe. And we're not told anything about the rich man's character, but what can we infer from this description of him here? I think we can see that he's quite self-serving. Lazarus sits at his gate. Imagine we see that Lazarus longs for the crumbs that fall from his table. He's that close, and the rich man doesn't do anything about it. There's a divide. He almost looks completely the other way. And then we look at Lazarus, and when we compare the two, I think society might say that the rich man is the person who's blessed. He's got all the luxury, he's without need, he's doing well. That is what it means to be blessed. But actually in this, I said that the rich man wasn't named Lazarus. It's the Greek translation of the name, I might butcher this, Eleazar, which means God helps. So right there from the get-go, we can see that actually it's the rich man who's named and known, no, no, sorry, not the rich man, Lazarus, who is named and known by God. And when we look at Lazarus and his situation, we can see that he's sitting at the rich man's gate, so he doesn't have a home. He also longs, he longs, that's such a powerful word, longing for crumbs. He doesn't have this desire to steal. He's just longing for the crumbs that fall from his table. So he's so hungry, he's in need and he doesn't have any connections. Nobody comes to talk to him. 
we actually know that his company is the dogs. When you go um, somewhere, like in the Caribbean, there are so many strays and nobody cares about the strays. And he's lumped here with the strays. And the strays, in a way, look after him. They lick his sores. And from that, we know that he doesn't have his health either. So Lazarus is in serious need. But again, he's the one who is blessed. He's the one who, in this story, is taken to Abraham's side. And I love that God is not like society. This is so countercultural. Whereas society might say, well, you're blessed because of what you have, and when we look at you, we can see it. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. There's an amazing verse in Samuel which says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I, when I think of Christianity, especially when I studied theology, I think it's so um, paradoxical. You've got the first that will be last. When you give, you will receive. It's the poor and the meek. They inherit the kingdom of God. They're the ones who have the actual true riches. And I think that that's really important. When we see how much God cares for Lazarus in this passage, we can see his radical generosity towards us and how in turn he wants us to be able to do that to others. Jesus flips that narrative and he ultimately brings hope. It's because that he gave us, we can therefore in turn give to others. And as I was preparing this, I thought, but what, what if somebody is thinking, well, what if I can't give? What if I've given all that I can? What if I'm tired? What if I'm already doing as much as I can? God's hope, as I said, is for us to be encouraged today. And my devotional reading yesterday was about religious activity can numb our spirituality. This is not just about doing. It's not just about doing the right thing. As I said, God looks at the heart. If, it, if this is just about doing, what could Lazarus have done? What would he have been able to give? What did he have? According to this, he didn't have anything. But it's that God looks at the inward and the heart. And as we keep continuing on with this parable, we can see that eventually both men die. And Lazarus is then carried to Abraham's side. It's actually quite blunt. It says in verse 22, The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. That's it. Sounds quite final. It sounds quite harsh. But imagine that picture of, the, of Lazarus being carried to Abraham's side. That depicts so much care. It suggests that God is even looking after him in this moment. That he's close to him. And then we get to this comparison of... Lazarus being in a place where there's, there's water, where there seems to be an abundance of life. He goes to Abraham's side. Some translations say his bosom, which suggests this nearness, um, this nurturing care. But for the rich man, he ends up in Hades. And it's a place of death. And we can see that he's in torment. He's in agony. He says in verse 24, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And then Father Abraham replies in verse 25, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received the bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. There's that reversal again, how things are flipped. But what's significant about this is that the rich man calls Lazarus, Lazarus sorry, Abraham, father, and Abraham calls him son. And he has to remind him here in Hades, where he's actually being quite self-centered again, come and relieve my pain. 
He has to remind him, hang on a second, you're here because of this. This is what you did or didn't do. And that father and son language gives us the impression that the rich man knew about Abraham. He was related to him. He knew the teachings. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he fell short of it. So it's not because he had wealth. That's not why he's been punished. But it's because he failed to do the right thing with it, what he was called to do. And then even further on, when we continue reading, we read of a chasm that's been set in place. And then we also see that the rich man begs Abraham. He says in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let, they, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But then Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. It's really jarring to read that. He's literally begging him. He's saying, look, help me out here. Go and tell my family. I don't want them to come here. But I think Abraham's reply, even though it's quite jarring, he says, well, you've got the word. They've got the word of God. And this reminds me of a really um, common Caribbean saying said often to naughty children, not myself, which is, who don't hear, go feel. Who don't hear, go feel. It essentially means if you're not going to listen, you're not going to take the words of warning, then you're going to find out when you eventually do it. So it, it might sound a bit silly, but that's what I see Abraham saying here. They're not going to hear the word of God. They've got Moses and the prophets in front of them. That is as significant as somebody raising from the dead. The miracles, um, the promises, the fulfillment of those promises. And Jesus is saying here, there's a story of who don't hear, go feel. Because he doesn't want us to be in that same position. Jesus wants us to hear so that we won't feel. And that's where this message of hope comes in. The final part of this passage, when we look um, at verses 30 to the end, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And then Abraham replies, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That really reminds me of Jesus. We celebrated Easter recently, Jesus rising from the dead, the hope that comes with his resurrection. And reading about that chasm again, that great divide that's been set in place, that's what Jesus came to bridge. He reconciled us to God. He breached that huge divide so that we can have access to God, that we can have the hope of heaven, that we can be filled with the Spirit, and more importantly, that we can receive all that comes with the most generous gift of all, which is God's Son. And then in this passage too, I find it quite jarring that the rich man is asking Abraham for help and Abraham doesn't comply. But it also reminds me that Jesus says, ask, ask in my father's name and it will be given to you. And that is the hope of Jesus. When we think of all that God has done for us and his generous giving and that we benefit so much from that, it's when we give that we can then be able to give out to others. It's when we're filled up that we can then pour out into others as well. And I know it can be hard to hear somebody say, give, give, do more, do this, do that. But whenever I think of that, 
Um, I'm reminded that Jesus often retreated to quiet places and prayed. He spent time with his father. He wasn't just constantly interacting and he wasn't just constantly giving and running on empty. And I don't know if you're feeling like you're running on empty. Maybe you know exactly what you've been given and how to be able to give with that. Maybe you don't know what it is that you have. Maybe you need God to encourage you. You need to receive from him in the first place. And it reminds me of my dad too. I said to him, dad, why, do you, why are you so generous? And he said to me, well, it's because I know what it's like not to have. We have empathy and compassion. God has that with us. That's why he gave us Jesus. But it's when we realize what it's like not to have, when we look at the person who's at our gate and we really see them and we don't turn a blind eye, that's when we're stirred and we're prompted. That's a spirit that can work in us as well to help us to address their need. And another thing I was thinking about with my dad is I wonder if he gives because he knows that what he has is not his. When you live your whole life relying on other people giving you food, clothes, a pencil, a sardine tin can so that you can make a toy, you realize that actually what you have is not yours and you don't hold on to it. There's an amazing article um, by Timothy Keller that we, I read in preparation for this. And it's got this amazing analogy of how in society we often see giving um, and what we have in terms of a, a lateral line. So we might have the government over here or the state over here and then us over on this side. Actually, as Christians, we believe that it's more like this. It's from God. It comes from up here and it's given down to us. And I think remembering that is what will inspire and help us to be even more generous, to be radically generous like God. So when we grasp how essential radical generosity is to God and how we've benefited from this, it is truly good news. And I love that when you give, you will receive. We don't give to receive. We give as it's a natural response in our hearts. But it's amazing that we can give and feel like we're losing something, but actually we gain, we receive abundance in response to that. And two questions that I really want to ask you today is what do you need to ask God for? What do you need to receive from him? And also, what has he given you in order to be able to give out to others? And this isn't just speaking about wealth. Giving generously can look like giving our time well, sitting with somebody. It also looks like listening really well, keeping an open mind, hearing somebody else's opinion, having empathy and understanding, not being distracted by looking at your phone, but giving them your undivided attention. It also looks like if you've been given the gifts of patience, of prayer, if you need to generously give forgiveness, that's how we can be radically generous too, as well as through the skills that we've been given and the knowledge that we have, the wisdom and experience that we can impart with others, as well as financially and materially too. Um, it reminds me as well of pan practice. 
I am part of a steel pan band. I had practice on Thursday. And there was this one moment for about 20 minutes where I couldn't pick up this one particular section. And it was so embarrassing. Everybody stopped playing while myself and the instructor just over and over again played this one piece over and over and over again. And it felt really uncomfortable. But I was really grateful that everybody else waited and they didn't judge me. They just respected that I needed a little bit more time in order to be able to pick up the piece. And the instructor, rather than getting frustrated with me, said, okay, hang on, let's take a second. Let me come alongside you. Let me show you what this looks like and let's play it together and let's do it as many times as we need to. And it might feel jarring, it might take up time, it might slow things down, but now I'm able to play it. And I think that really il illustrates well what it looks like to be radically generous too. Whether it's here at church, it's in the workplace, it's on the tube um, when we can travel safely to places again. Even if it's in your online Zoom meeting, what does radical generosity look like for you? So we're about to worship and we say as well that giving is part of our worship. So let's give glory and praise and honor to God. And let's give him our hearts. Let's come before him and lay everything down and also ask to receive from him too.